to really move the needle forward as we deal with these uh, issues that we face today. I think it's important that we understand the difference between equality and equity. Equality says equal resources. However, equity suggests something otherwise. Welcome to There's a Better Way. Each episode, Dr. Arvind Chandrasekharan, professor and academic director, will sit down with a prominent expert or faculty leader to discuss how business principles can provide solutions to problems we may face in our professional and personal lives. This program is brought to you by Fisher Executive Education. Welcome to There is a Better Way. I'm here with uh, Dr. Cynthia Turner, Chief Diversity Officer and Assistant Dean at the Fisher College of Business. Welcome to the program, Cynthia. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Cynthia, we're going to talk um, today uh, around the whole idea of acting. I mean, I'm going to even call this as acting, enough said and acting. And, and before we do that, I, I really want to like introduce you to that audience about what you do at Fisher in terms of your roles and responsibilities. So my roles uh, are all encompassing and I, I learn more and more uh, about this role as I've um, begun uh, this process. Well, what was this? All started in August. I moved from the accounting faculty position to this uh, new leadership position with my, I would say my bandwidth has pretty much involved underrepresented minorities in accounting. Uh, But diversity and inclusion is actually uh, pretty um, deep and wide. And so my experience has been just championing the efforts of our students, staff, and faculty, and even now moving into the area of uh, the alumni base and trying to see how we can better meet the needs and to move forward diversity and inclusion on all levels. So that's why I say it's all-encompassing. Yeah. And I, I, I do want to go back to this whole idea of diversity and inclusion. And, 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 and today we are in unprecedented times. A couple of things are happening, as we know, coronavirus has, has affected our lives, our learning, and our education, and, and also uh, the unfortunate events that has happened. And I, I would call them as events because this keeps happening. Yeah. These are three important things that has come out with the unfortunate things with George Floyd, Ahmed, and uh, Breonna Taylor. But I, before we get there, um, given your role as the diversity officer uh, and uh, educational institutions like Ohio State going online, I'm, I'm sure there are challenges that our listeners are unaware of, especially with the minority people when they are actually thinking about education online. So can you walk us through some of the things that you find and you're working with them as they're actually thinking about learning differently? Well, if you don't mind, I think it's really important when we start talking about the minority communities and the issues they face. It, it needs to be put in a historical context. So if you can give me a second to kind of, so when we start talking about it, we can talk about it with everyone on the same page. And when you talk about the black community specifically, we have to go all the way back (laughs) to spare everyone. I'm going to just go back to the 1930s. So let's say in the 1930s, we were at a point where um, the, we, had, we were working with the Federal Housing Administration. It had just been established. And basically, what it enacted was what we call now a practice called redlining. And for those who are not familiar with redlining, I think it gives you context when we talk about COVID-19 and the recent um, 
tragic deaths of George and Brianna and uh, Ahmed, among many. So redlining was essentially practice where the government actually took out a map of the country to determine what areas that they would uh, relegate Black people to. And they drew a red line around it to basically tell all of the stakeholders to beware of investing, of supporting mortgages in those areas. And as a consequence, we saw it was almost like a state-sanctioned segregational type of policy, where in fact, African-Americans, Blacks, were unable to purchase homes in the suburbs, and they were relegated to urban housing projects. Well, what did that mean? That basically meant from the 1930s to through 1968, for almost four decades, African-Americans, Blacks were unable to actually benefit from the most common form of wealth in our country, which is your equity in your homes, right? And so for nearly four decades, African-Americans were uh, relegated to urban housing projects where they were not able to generate wealth. They were not able to get um, loans. Also, there was, uh, there was less investment from retailers, from all the stakeholders. And so we, and, until 1968, that was a practice that was uh, allowed and enforced, right? So... What happens when you think about that? You had four decades of their our white uh, colleagues and friends being able to not only use the equity in their homes to support their children, go to college, support their family members, but even uh, for that wealth uh, to the next generation, we were prevented from that, okay? So, and then we were placed in areas or only allowed to live in areas where there was very little investment in those areas. So we did not have access to the uh, major chain restaurants, uh, supermarkets, healthcare. And so this is something that now, even though it has been banned since 1968, we are still dealing with those remnants, okay? Because even though it is now banned, uh, you know, uh, institutions are banned from uh, forbidding or preventing those of color from those areas from um, taking out loans and so forth. They still have the, uh, are able to use the practice of economics and their financial backgrounds, right? So those who are still in those areas with no opportunities, had no opportunities over the years, this is where you see us now looking at this perfect storm of COVID-19 and dealing with actually addressing the health disparities there and then dealing with the, the police brutality issues in those very same communities. And so you can't talk about what actions are required until you understand the history behind what those communities have had to undergo or have had to deal with since 1930s. You have to also understand 345 years of the Black experience in America has been in, in as slaves or segregated. The combination of slavery and being uh, segregated and redlined. It's only in the last 55 years have we had the opportunity, African-Americans had the opportunity to freely be able to 
move around in the public and space and do all of the various things that our, uh, everyone else, our white counterparts have been able to do. So we are still dealing with parents. I have parents and grandparents who are quite, and all of us likely have parents and grandparents, are very familiar, live most of their lives where we were segregated. We did not, uh, we were not able to be in the same restaurants, be, you know, frequent the same public spaces. So as much as, you know, we've seen a lot of progress, this is no surprise to me because when we start looking at how COVID-19 has impacted the minority communities, it makes sense. If it's been devoid of access to healthcare, it's been devoid of access to not only healthcare, but to retail, which could provide, you know, the kind of foods and all of the things that would allow them to live a healthy lifestyle. It does not, you know, it doesn't surprise me and shouldn't surprise anyone. And there's studies, you know, you know, significant studies out there that shows that those communities are plagued with uh, more chronic conditions. When we look at the wealth gap, it's, it's unbelievable. Let's just talk about income gap. And we're talking about race. We're not even talking race alone. You know, Black Americans, our income is 60% of that on average to that of our white counterparts. When you start talking about wealth, we have about 5% of the amount of wealth that our white counterparts have. So you mix all that up and what you see today is uh, just, like I said, a perfect storm of what happens economically when our community is uh, devoid of the opportunities that other communities are have. So when we start talking about action, we got to start there yeah. with under, that understanding. Yeah, this is, I mean, like, when I was reading about this again, I apologize, Cynthia, because I'm, I'm uh, as you might know, I came to the U.S. 20 years ago, you know, thinking about U.S. And when I started reading about these things, it really hit me. And, and, and this whole idea of the segregation that you talked about, we all know from this. And we see stories about this all the time, too. Like I recently read an op-ed about Cory Booker talking about the exact same problem yes. that you talked about on how it impacted his growing up when his parents were not allowed to get housing in an area where they deserved and how that actually affected. And, and we hear these stories from great personalities, but there are so many hidden elements that we don't know. And it's chronic. As you mentioned, one thing leads to the other thing That's leads right. to the other and it just That's spirals right. over and over again. Right. That's so, right. so clearly again, when I talk about actions, I actually say that I am I'm cautious about it because there are so many problems here and I don't think one person or one entity can fix it. It has to be a community driven thing. Right. So right. tell me more about from your standpoint, as you think about this chronic problem, uh, and let's break it into two things. One is the COVID-19 and, and the police brutality that is happening right now. How should we think about it? As educational institutions, what should we do in order to make some meaningful actions? So what, what I do know is that we need, as an educational institution, to better partner and collaborate with the local, our local communities. The Black church has... Uh, stood the test of time in the Black communities. And I know that oftentimes we veer away from connecting with them, but if you want to really find that cross-section mm-hmm. of, of Blacks if from the disenfranchised and the marginalized to those who are actually in the, the, the workplace, who are your colleagues and so forth, you'll find many of us in, still in those churches. Mm-hmm. And so 
Um, there are a lot of great things happening there, but they are limited in resources and support. And to the extent that we are, we're trying to address and to meet the needs of those communities, you need to listen to, we need to be able to really um, connect and partner with them in ways because the, the leadership uh, of these particular uh, institutions, they really understand, they know, they personally um, connect with that community in a way, in ways that the Ohio State University or institutions like ours would, uh, it would be more difficult for us to. So I think we need to connect with those institutions, the Black Church, and then you have, you know, um, NAACP, you have the Urban League, you have all of these organizations that have been within in the community and has been a staple in those communities since, you know, um, we've been freed. Mm -hmm. And um, consequently, um, we need to really start thinking long and hard about how we can connect and collaborate to, um, with those trusted voices of the Black community such that we can really make some inroads. That's great. So churches would be one place to start. Mm -hmm. I also want to ask you along the similar lines, I've, I was reading about this really shocking statistics about like how high school education to think about, again, it goes back to the same problem that you, you talked about. Again, they live where they go to school and they don't have the capabilities and, and the graduation rates among black community uh, high school kids is so low and it all starts there. It all starts with education. And, 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 and right. what can we do in terms of Ohio State and other programs? What can we do to actually go to the chronic from an education standpoint, tapping them into high schools and middle schools and even elementary schools, the way I think about this? So we have to think about it holistically. I think, you know, from, especially from a business side, we're talking about Fisher, you mm -hmm. know, we started talking about return on investment, you know, on investments. And we look at them in the terms of 12 months. Mm -hmm. We have to look at, you know, when in fact we prevent our, uh, any uh, person within our society from fulfilling their potential. We have to look at what it looks like on the end, because I know some, you know, businesses are always looking at it from the perspective of how do we benefit and how we grow. We're also losing out then on um, uh, human capital, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the potential, the, the, the gifts and the this, this abilities and the skill sets of individuals who could contribute in ways to our uh, institutions if they were given opportunities. Now, I, I wanted, though, also address uh, one uh, marked difference that oftentimes we get these, mm -hmm. these terms mixed up, equality versus equity. Mm -hmm. um, I just had this conversation not too long ago, um, and I think it's really important to, to know the distinction. Equality would be, and I'll use the example of what we're dealing with with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. When our students went home um, after we decided it was not wise for them to stay on campus, Equality would say, make certain that every student go, goes home with laptops, right? Mm -hmm. So if every student goes home uh, with laptops, that means that, uh, in fact, they will have equal access to mm -hmm. um, their uh, education while okay. away from campus. Uh, equity would say, let's look at those who may have laptops. We've sent everyone home with laptops, but they don't have internet access. Mm -hmm because they're in a, in a community, um, their um, backgrounds and their, so, their uh, economic status, they are unable to do so, right? Then you start thinking about beyond that, um, what about those who are homes where they're, you know, 
they're in a home with 10 people when three bedroom home. So even if they have internet access and even though they may have laptops, they're dealing with distractions that unlike their peers who may be able to go to a basement area where they can you know, have totally un, uh, devoted, undistracted time. So equality and equity has to, you have to have the historical perspective of, you're talking about communities that likely um, have additional needs than other communities. And unless we are willing to um, deal with the equity issue, then that's, uh, that's only time where we really will be able to see ourselves progressing forward. As long as we're just talking about equality, we're gonna have uh, disparities because it's just, it's been embedded in the way of, of the fabric of America for you know hundreds of years, and we can't just say equality then get to you know will uh, allow us to get everyone up to the same level in a playing field because it's just not so. Yeah. So, so equity. Yeah. So equity wise, again, like I want to go back. What can we do? Because you're absolutely right that it's so tough for us to say that we know everything that we know. We don't know a lot. Like uh, an institution can say, we'll give them laptops, we'll give them uh, uh, meal vouchers, and, and, and that's it, and they'll be happy. But we know that problems are so complex out there, and these things cannot be seen. What can we do, Cynthia? First I mean, of all, that means that every institution must be committed to putting folks at around that decision table uh, who knows those issues, right? Who know... Um, that constituency and understands those issues that they face. The problem is that we want to act, and many times we want to act in, in good faith, but we don't know the needs and we don't know the complexities of those communities. So the first thing is to ensure that you have their voices at the table. Hmm. That's the first action. The second one is that once you are aware of what those issues are, um, that you're not only willing to invest dollars, but you're willing to invest time, programming, activities. Here's the thing. You know, we talk about this. I, I, we may invest dollars in buildings. We may uh, invest dollars in technology. But we also must be able to invest uh, dollars in programming that meets them where they are. For instance, I was talking to an organization that goes into some of the inner city uh, schools in Columbus. And the program is great, but the program is just the same program is applied to the inner cities that they apply to the suburbs. Mm. And so the, the language of the uh, programs are such that um, it goes over the head of many of those students because it's not relatable nor relevant, mm. right? So it's not re relatable or relevant. And so it's important that as you are thinking about the choices and the decisions and the actions that you make, you again, it is imperative that those voices, those who understand the complexities of that space are at the table when you're acting. That's the first step. I believe that everything else will follow because what may impact or um, support one community may be a little different for another community, right? But there are things that I, I know for certain when we start talking about Ohio State, I know that we have the Young Scholars Program, which is amazing. It starts the students at ninth grade. It supports them fully if they fulfill the program, that they are um, they're insured scholarship dollars to attend Ohio State. I think it's awesome. We, we track them. 
we support them throughout the program. Likewise, um, I believe we need to go beyond ninth grade. We lose many of our students right around middle school, right? Because if by ninth grade, if you look at how, um, what the expectations or the requirements are for Ohio State, if you have not taken certain math courses before you get to the ninth grade, you've already positioned, these students are already positioned themselves to be behind. Sure. So to the extent that we can pour our particular talent skill sets and helping shape the curriculum or being a part of that curriculum in the early years, uh, giving the student access to the outcomes or what they can be, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of things I've noticed that when working with the students that I, I try to get into the classrooms as in elementary schools, um, what I've learned is that many of those students don't, uh, don't know more than a, um, their, the perimeter of their neighborhoods and in their schools. Mm -hmm. They are right here in Columbus, never stepped foot on uh, the Ohio State University, have, you know, have, they don't have access to, uh, they don't, they're not fortunate to have family members or friends who have attended um, Ohio State. Um, and so for them, what they know is only in that space. So I feel mm -hmm. like for us, um, we need to be um, uh, intentional in putting our uh, placing our students in those spaces, partnering with organizations like Junior Achievement, mm -hmm. and placing our students uh, in those spaces so the student, so those young people can see beyond their circumstances as it sure. stands right now, right? So they can see, oh, I can do this, and give them a roadmap how to do it. Not only informing them, but their parents as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because a child could want the world, right? And desire all of that. But if the parents are, aren't committed, the parents are mm -hmm. not even committed, they're not aware and they're not like, educated about what is necessary. Mm -hmm. If there's a lot, not a partnership between the community, the schools and, and the universities and every other institution, it's, we're going to, we're yeah. going to fail. We're going yeah. to, or at least fall short of, our, you know, making significant progress. I agree. I agree with you, Cynthia. In fact, the other thing that you mentioned about, and as, as a Fisher people that we should be proud of, is the bright program that we are known, like the bright EMBA program, where we actually like uh, uh, have principal leaders coming from some of these schools, get MBA degree and go back and serve right. these, these schools, right. right? So that's good. So so that's great, Cynthia, but these are all long term. I, I do want to like, again, go back to the second question I have, because that is, these things will clearly be good actions for us to like think about some changes as you mentioned i, I really like this long term and short term the long term investments in these things are going to help our community to actually like create more equity around right. this okay right. in the short term i do want to go back to the second pressing problem that we are facing right now with respect to the three unfortunate deaths and the police brutality what can we do because again that's another important thing that i don't want to forget what can we do as, again, in a, in a way, peaceful protest is there, but are there anything else that we can do to make sure that, again, things can actually be seen well in the short term? So uh, the only thing that we can do, and I, I want to understand policy is <laughs> voting is important, understanding um, uh, the policies that are we put in place every time and uh, um, our legislators are looking to enact uh, particular new laws or regulations, I think it's also 
as um, informed, as an informed institution, as an informed organization, as informed citizens. We need to understand the consequences and, and the impact on these communities. Oftentimes, when we look at these policies, we look at it. What is it in what? Uh, what is it in, uh, what do I get, uh, um, let me say that again. And often, uh, when we look at these types of policies that are put forth, we're always looking at it selfishly. How does it impact my organization? How does it impact me? Honestly, if we really want to see um, some short-term, and uh, when we look at the, the uh, 2020 election, we need to look at what is the platform of these individuals? How would that platform impact? impact minority communities because oftentimes there are consequences complex complex consequences that if you're not aware mm -hmm. you could be signing off on something that actually will uh, negatively impact the community so really again being around individuals who understand that platform and understands uh, understand uh, its impact and actually getting um, listening to them, Mm -hmm. discuss this through their, their lens so you can understand as you're making your decisions uh, and getting rallying behind um, policies that will support uh, uh, the uh, progress of these min of our minority communities. I think that's important too. So in the short run, we have 2020, we're looking right, you know, as, uh, the election is coming uh, quickly. I think <laughs> we just need to be informed. Uh, first, be, become educated about the issues of, uh, related to our communities and uh, minority communities and be proactive in ensuring that those policies that are not supportive are not passed and those that are that, are, that we champion those so, such that uh, we can make some inroads immediately. Yeah, and that's a very useful uh, advice to the best way to take action is to go and make your votes matter right you can go and, 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 and make sure that you listen to diverse voices about these individuals so you know we we tend to be biased and have you know go to sure. groups that we pursue i would encourage the larger audience to start identifying others who they trust their voice uh, but they're diverse just they hear the perspectives so that as they're making decisions that they are totally informed before they make those decisions of who they cast their vote. Yeah. So this before. is very useful, Cynthia. Again, as you think about what you just told us, again, it's really inspiring. It starts from the churches to the schools, to the yes. educational institutions, to the local community, to how you actually like participate in democracy. Everything has to be there for us to make some meaningful change as we see that because I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm so hurt again uh, in terms of what is happening, but, but we all are so energized. I'm sure there are so many listeners out there that are energized to go and do something, but meaningfully acting is what we should do. And I think your conversation is going to be very useful along those lines. And, and I would just add, I, yes. I would encourage us all to expand our circles, our social circles. Mm -hmm. I think that to me, if you were saying, okay, this seems so ambitious, right? I'm just, you know, 
I, I don't have the kind of decision rights that could lead to certain things. Yes, voting and, and understanding the platforms of the individuals to whom you will cast your vote and, and you know, with support, but also just expanding your circles, whether or not that's socially identifying individuals that, you know, getting suggestions from family, friends, and colleagues about individuals that you should listen to podcasts, their blogs to start reviewing, and then just in your social circles, just adding individuals that who don't look like you in that space, but you respect um, what they've accomplished and, sure. and where they are and, and so that you can get some balance. I, unfortunately, I think some social media has um, set it up such that um, we, can, we can listen to those who uh, you know, think just like us and we will <laughs> never get out of that space of what it is that will make a society better overall. And I think that's important. And let me also just point out, you, like you said, Fisher is doing some great things. I don't want to minimize the fact that in Ohio State, um, you know, we have Project Thrive right in the accounting program, and we've been able to just, and that has uh, solely focused on underrepresented minorities in accounting. And just over the last four years, we've been able to uh, now quadruple the uh, number of uh, students of underrepresented uh, backgrounds in accounting. And because truly it is, it's about giving uh, those individuals in those communities hope. Mm -hmm. And to do so is to give them the opportunity to give them access mm -hmm. uh, and give them opportunities. I, you talk about business communities. Start thinking about, can we provide internships at a um, high school level, uh, allow students to be able to uh, shadow uh, those of, in your particular area such that they get a chance to see what else is out there. You know, mm. when you start thinking about um, supporting education, think about programs, summer programs that mm. will help uh, reinforce that within the classroom um, and also um, just providing some resources to those schools, uh, maybe even adopting one elementary or middle school and, and you send your business, uh, uh, your, your employees uh, there to support in, with their time and resources that reach out to the principals. There are so many small things mm. that will amount to uh, some significant things if we just start one step at a time. Yeah, and I agree with you. Again, these might look small in isolation, but then when they all are put together, I think they can make a meaningful impact. So I think, I think there are lots of actions, Cynthia. I've learned a lot of actions just listening to all your energy and passion. So thank you so much for spending some time with us. I'm sure our listeners are going to take some meaningful next steps and act on some of the advices that you have done. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. For more episodes or information about executive education program offerings, please visit fisher.osu.edu.